you know how this is going to go. <laughs> Every Sunday, you know that I need a little help. I need to know that you're there, that you're with me, that you're excited. Sound good? Okay. This is more maybe for me than it is for you, humor me, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you were here last week, uh, you know that we opened up this book and began teaching through it, and it's going to carry us for a while um, this spring. And uh, I won't go back and recap the whole intro, but you're welcome, obviously, to go back uh, and to catch the podcast from that. Uh, But I do want to fast forward a little bit and share with you, uh, towards the end of the book, something that Peter writes, uh, which is basically his thesis uh, for the reason he's writing this particular letter uh, to those particular churches. Uh, In 1 Peter 5, verse 12, uh, he says, by Silvanus, uh, who was um, the courier or the one that would have been the messenger to take the letter from the hand of Peter and deliver it to the churches, he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. If you were to boil this whole book down to one thesis sentence, that would be it. Uh, Peter's writing uh, to a group of churches, and and he knows their situation. He knows that they have suffered a lot because they are Christians. They have been uh, pushed aside and ostracized by their family, their culture, the government, and they were suffering and being persecuted, and they just didn't fit in anymore. He called them in the opening exiles, and he knows that situation so deeply that he is writing to exhort by declaring the true grace of God so that they will stand firm. That word exhort uh, very simply means to to encourage or to put courage into, uh, and, and that's the goal, not just for Peter to those churches, but I believe from the Holy Spirit through this book to us is to put the courage into you to live a faithful Christian life uh, in a world where we are not always welcome. We are oftentimes pushed aside. That's the goal Peter has. Uh, My wife and I have three kids. And um, they're all in school of different ages. We have done a mix of uh, public and homeschool. But one of our kids came home one day. And if you're a parent, I'm sure that you can resonate with this. Uh, Maybe even uh, you resonate with this remembering your past and going through school. But it had been a very horrible day uh, for one of our kids. They had been um, made fun of, mocked, uh, belittled, uh, lied about, bullied to a a degree. And I just remember them coming home and uh, seeing that on their face that something had gone wrong. It had been a rough day. Uh, They had suffered a little bit. And so when when dad or when mom sees that, uh, normally what you don't, your first reaction isn't to go give them the list of things they need to do, the top 10 things that tomorrow they need to employ these exercises and here's three steps towards engaging their school better. Like that's normally just not the first reaction. The first reaction as a mom or dad that loves their kid is to bring them in, set them on your lap, wipe the tears away, and then try to solidify or galvanize their identity, right, to remind them who they are. And I remember doing this, wiping the tears away and say, listen, I don't care what those kids said about you. They're mean. Kids can be mean. Like, this is what I say about you, and I love you, and your mother loves you, and this is your family, and you belong. And you really start with trying to galvanize an identity 
And after you remind them who they are and where they truly belong, where their true home is, then you can teach them to then go out and live in the world what, and, and teach them what to do. But normally before the what to do's uh, come the who are we's. And I, I think that's a, a helpful image for what Peter is trying to do. Uh, he knows these Christians and these churches have been beat up by their culture. And so he is, he's calling them in uh, and he's trying, at least in, in the very opening part of his letter, to, to remind them who they are and who their relationship to God is and solidify their identity before then he turns around to send them back into the world. Uh, they had been suffering, and Paul's reminding them this, and in verse 3 uh, is where we're going to pick up. And he's just going to kind of uh, rapid-fire, sequential, give like seven different identity statements that were obviously important to them if they were going to be faithful exiles, if they were going to, quote, um, stand firm in it. And, and I want to walk through these and, and, and show you each how these are important. If you're going to be a faithful Christian in the world to, to know and to believe really deep down in your soul, your identity in Christ. So if you're in First Peter chapter 1 and you are ready for the gospel and the Holy Spirit to do something in your heart, say ready. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. There's at least seven very clear things that he says to them, that God says to you. I want to back up and work our way through them. Number one, uh, these are things that are not just true about us, but we need to know and internalize if we're going to stand firm and be faithful. Number one, we, uh, and, and these are like grammatically bad. Roll with me. I'm going to get the point across. They're not going to end up on you know, mugs or T-shirts anywhere. But uh, number one, this is just true about us, our identity. We're receivers of mercy. We're recipients of mercy. That's where, that's where Peter starts. He says, according to his great mercy. He's like, you're, you're a Christian. You belong to God. You belong to Jesus, and here's how you got there. Not because you earned your way in, but because of his great mercy. And that's a really powerful word. It's a really powerful truth. Um, mercy, it's not just something that is given. Uh, it does mean uh, compassion that's given, uh, forgiveness that it's given, um, but it's, it's deeper than that. It, it really means that that is given in place of something else, um, that where wrath was deserved, forgiveness was given, uh, that where hell was deserved, heaven was given, that it's not just the giving of something, but the withholding, and when those come together, Peter's like, you've got to know this, like, the, the whole reason you're here is because of his great mercy, and that should do a lot of things in your soul. I think if we realize that's how we got to this place of being Christians, then it should take a lot of the pressure off that if you got into the family by mercy and not by good works, then you're not going to maintain your place in the family by good works. It's maintained by God's mercy. He starts there. If you didn't earn it, you can't lose it because of God's mercy. We're, we're, we're receivers of mercy. And starting with this for the rest of the morning, I just want to lay this out there, that there's some of these 
truths and concepts um, that we have heard so many times for so many years. And I think you're going to see at the end that Peter's uh, perhaps a little worried that those monumental truths have become an, become a bit commonplace to us, uh, and they don't stir our hearts and our affections towards God again. And so I'm asking, not just in my heart, but in your heart as well, that even if you've heard these for 50 years, that in a fresh way, the Holy Spirit would remind you that God has given you great mercy. Number two, he says you've been born again. Everybody say born again. Thank you. Like, we've heard that our whole lives for 2,000 years. The phrase has been around born again. But when Jesus coins that term and starts using that analogy or that illustration, uh, some, some people were confused. The first time, John 3, at least the first that I'm aware of, that Jesus uses this to describe what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. He's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus was very confused. He had never heard it before, and this interchange is it's theologically rich, but it's also hilarious. The, the questions, and like, I'm going to read it to you. It's not on the screen, but I do want to read it. This is John chapter 3. Uh, Jesus is talking to uh, a, a political, social leader, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Jesus answered him. He, he had posed the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. Okay. Try to imagine you've never heard that before. You didn't know that was a thing. You've never read John. You've never heard this before. And Jesus is like, the only way you're getting this deep life change and you're getting into God's family, you're going into heaven, is if you are born again. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Fair question. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water, uh, which every woman when she goes into labor to give birth, her water breaks and this child is born of water. Unless someone is born of water and the spirit, there's got to be two births. He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then you fast forward a couple verses to perhaps the most famous verse in at least the West, John 3, 16. Jesus explains how does one uh, become born again. Uh, and, and we know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, whoever puts their, transfers their faith, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, why does, why does Peter start there when he's trying to solidify our identity to remind us that we've been born again? The, the, the change that should happen when somebody becomes a Christian, is, is, it's so thorough and so dramatic that when the Holy Spirit gets all the way inside and like legitimately transforms and changes our hearts so that everything else changes, Jesus is saying that is such a thorough change that it could only be described as being born again, being reborn. So if you're a Christian, you need to remember the, 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 the slate has been wiped clean, brand new start because you've been born again. 
And if you're not a Christian, we have Christians, we have non-Christians come every week uh, listening, perhaps you're searching, maybe there's uh, something going on in your life, maybe you have questions and you're just kind of drawn to something uh, and you're wondering if, if the Jesus of the Bible of Christianity is your answer, you're wondering how do you get uh, to be, how, how does my life change? How do things in my heart change? How do habits change? How, do, how does my eternity change? then don't listen to oftentimes what the world would say or what even other religions say of, oh, if you want a change, then you need to fix this and stop drinking so much and stop cussing so much and stop sleeping around and you, like just, just stop doing things and start doing new things. Instead, listen to what Jesus says, and Jesus says you must be born again unless a, a change so deep, radical, metamorphical, that's not, like, unless something so drastic changes that it's like you've been completely reborn, like, like, like you're on a, you can't change enough, you can't fix enough. And, and I love the fact that he says you have been born again. And, and that's part of our identity, that's the second thing. And when you're born again, you get a new family, the church, you get a new father, uh, you get new desires, some of you, that's your story. When you became a Christian, uh, you didn't love doing the things that you love doing. You hate new things. You love new things. You have this brand new heart. You've been born again. Number three, he says a living hope. We've been born again to a living hope. Everybody, for my sake, say living hope. Okay, we have, we've talked about this for a few years now. The Apostle Paul what uh, was often referred to as the apostle of faith. He talks about faith a lot. Uh, he talks about the, the importance of justification by faith alone. He, he's, he's the apostle of faith. And then you have John, uh, who was one of the apostles. We call him the apostle who Jesus loved. Uh, he is the apostle of love. But Peter, uh, Peter is the one that is constantly beating the drum of hope. Uh, and not only hope, but he calls it here a living hope. Um, that if you're going to navigate um, this world as a faithful Christian, you're going to need to understand that we, and we have a hope, but not just a hope, we have a living hope. Because it's, it's really important what you put your hope and what you connect your hope to. Because if you connect your hope to something that can die, then you're going to lose hope. If you connect your hope to, uh, uh, to a politician and, and that politician doesn't win, then, then your hope goes with it. If you connect it to the economy uh, and the economy tanks, then your hope, like, it's so important what you connect your hope to because hope is an essential part of life. We, we normally set aside Sometime in December as we're talking about Advent uh, to talk about how incredibly important hope is, it is on par with the human needs of air, water, and you might think, well, it's, it's really not. Um, you know, we all know some people that had the basic necessities of life, food, water, shelter, but uh, maybe took their own life because they didn't have hope. Like hope is so unbelievably important and what you put your hope in is important and Paul calls it living hope. We have a living hope. And so I wanna, I wanna look at this for a bit uh, because, because of, of something that happened in Peter's life that I think m maybe you can resonate with. I definitely do, uh, and, and because of what he had experienced and witnessed with Jesus, uh, he just is the hope guy. He is the champion of hope. He's the apostle of hope. Uh, one thing, I think it's because uh, Peter had a lot of ups and downs. 
if, if you've done a, a little study of Peter's life, you know he had some really good days, had some really bad days. Uh, some days he was great and seemed brilliant. Some days he was just an idiot, right? How many of you, like, I can connect with that. Chase, thank you. Like, it's just like ups and downs. Like, well, it's easy to relate to Peter. And if God can use Peter, then God can use you. And if you have ups, great. If you have downs, great. Like, Peter learned some deep elements of hope because he had some good days and he had some bad days. On his good days, he was kind of the one that for the first time said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he had some bad days where where Jesus literally called him Satan and says, get behind me. Those are very different, right? He had some good days. His last day was a good day when he was crucified uh, for the sake of being a Christian. And he said he didn't even deserve to die the way Jesus did. So he's crucified upside down. Uh, What a good day. But he had a rough day uh, when Jesus was crucified and Peter denied to a little girl even knowing him. On the day Jesus needed him the most, he was not there. Peter had incredible days of ups and downs and yet he learned that, 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 that there's hope because hope is connected to Jesus, not to our performance. But also... The, the resurrection of Jesus utterly changed Peter to his core. And so that's why he calls it not just hope, but a living hope, because his hope is connected to Jesus who rose from the grave and he's not dying again. So his hope is intact forever. Okay, so Peter, the night Jesus is betrayed, he had his moment to shine, his moment to have courage and to show Jesus he was in. And as we know, he didn't. Uh, he was a, an, a, an utter coward that night. And, and he was not, uh, from what I gather in the scriptures, after Jesus died for three days, Peter was not filled with hope. Uh, he was nervous. He was hiding. He was scared. And something unbelievably dramatic happened to Peter where a few weeks later he would be standing up preaching in Jerusalem to thousands of people, perhaps look, I, 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 I kind of have the idea that the people that, that crucified Jesus, the leaders uh, of, of the Pharisees, Sadducees, even the Romans were there, and he had no problem preaching to them face-to-face, telling them to repent and believe because they had crucified the Son of God. That's a different Peter. What happened in between? The resurrection. Like if your leader rises from the the grave, then like all of a sudden things become much more hopeful. So Peter forever is the apostle of hope because of what Jesus had done in his life was infinitely patient with him and could use him despite all of his ups and downs. And he had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he puts before you, if you're a Christian, you have a living hope. If you put your hope in Jesus, you'll never be disappointed. He has risen, he is fine, he's, he, he's, he's living, he's fine, he's doing well. We have a living hope. He keeps going. Uh, the resurrection, and Katie asked me this morning, uh, she was looking through some of my notes in my PowerPoint. She said, uh, did you mean to say we are a resurrection people? Uh, and I said, sadly, yes, that is the grammar that I chose. Because we're just, we're resurrection people. That means we have been united with Christ, not just in his death, but in his resurrection. That means we have resurrection power, Paul says. That means there is a real physical resurrection coming for those who believe resurrection unto life. Uh, We're a resurrection people. And the same resurrection that changed Peter should change our outlook on life, our trust in Christ. We are a resurrection people. And if you're going to be faithful 
living your life out in the culture, you need to be reminded that we're resurrection people. Our God rose from the dead. Number five, it says that we have an inheritance. It says that we've been given an inheritance. How many of you would love a huge inheritance? Not a trick question. Everybody would say, put me first in line. I, I, I spent a bit of time this week thinking about like tr- trying to imagine I was Peter, trying to imagine I was the church that would have been reading this letter and thinking, what is Peter, tr- like what is he trying to do or accomplish when he says these things? And he, he very purposefully goes out of his way to remind Christians that you have an inheritance, that something is coming for you that you don't have full possession of yet. Okay, so imagine um, that somebody decides uh, that they have, they're, they're very wealthy. Uh, they have a lot of money and they decide they really like you. And so they are going to put that money in a trust fund. Uh, And for my example this morning, I just said, let's all pretend, because we've got people of all ages in this room, let's all pretend that we're 20 years old. How many of you would love to be 20 again? Let's all pretend we're 20 and somebody gives you $10 million, they put it in a trust fund, uh, and they say, you can have access to this when you turn 40 And you think, finally, something to look forward to when I turn 40 other than just random pains for no reason. And so what would that do? Knowing that something is there waiting for you in the future, you're going to acquire possession of it someday. What would that do to you? Would that change? Well, obviously, you'd be grateful for that person. Would that change the way you kind of were leaning in and anticipating for something and the closer it got, the more excited you got? Would it maybe change some of the things that you can't afford now, some of the shortcomings that you have financially, some of the challenges maybe that you have? It kind of change all that knowing that something else is coming. Peter says that as Christians, we have an inheritance that is coming. And it's not like most, most inheritance here it's given by a parent or grandparent and like I would get it when they died. Jesus has died once. He's not dying again. So this inheritance is enacted when we die. Now, presumably this idea should have a ridiculously deep effect on a Christian. Here's why this is challenging for a lot of us in the West. Um, they're, they're, the gospel carries two promises. One is that when you come to Christ through faith, you're born again, is that you do, you get abundant life now. Like the gospel should change things. It should change relationships. It should change things in your life. It should change your life now to give what Jesus calls an abundant life. But it also promises eternal life after you die. And what, what I think happens is that most of the time we get really excited about one of those, uh, and that's normally based on kind of the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, so if you go to some places across the planet, uh, maybe you've been to a handful, I've been to a handful uh, of places where there's just a, a lot of suffering, uh, not a lot of uh, money, not a lot, if the kids get sick, don't have hospitals, don't have savings account, don't have a retirement plan, and life just looks a little more difficult, maybe a little bit more like hell. Christians in those contexts are are longing for heaven. They're longing for eternal life because this life is just not real good sometimes. But then sometimes if 
we have, you know, relatively good health care, and we've got a savings account, we've got retirement, and we've got, you know, an early 80s life expectancy, and life is just pretty good, then very easily we just forget to long for heaven because we don't need to because this is pretty good. And so what you get in this is people wanting to know how does the gospel uh, affect my life now, which is a valid question. The gospel does both. Right? The gospel gives abundant life now, eternal life later. Here, here's just what I want to lay before you. Is, is Even if this is us and we've got a lot of the just really deep blessings of God, there should be something in us that is still longing for and waiting for the day that we die and inherit something that just will will put this, not to shame, but Paul says, like, you can't even describe it. Like, it's not even worth trying to put to words what inheritance is coming. And so we have to long for that a little bit. And Peter's like, listen, I know things are bad, but there's inheritance coming. It's guaranteed. There's an inheritance coming. We have an inheritance. He calls it, it's an inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As good as life can be here, don't forget to long for something better, namely Jesus in the flesh. That's what heaven is about. He keeps going. Number six, he says that we're being guarded. It's like on your journey, Christians, from here to glory, from here to your inheritance, you'll be safe, you'll be fine. Why? Not because you're good or greater, you're keeping yourself, but because you're being kept by God. God's guarding you. God's guarding you. He'll make sure that you get your way all the way home. Praise God. We're not kept by our power, amen, but by God's power. Number seven, last one, he says that there's still something that we're waiting on. Uh, there's something that we're uh, waiting on. It's very similar to, um, to what we just read, that there's something kept in heaven for you, and there needs to be an element of, of leaning in. That if there's not anything that we're missing and longing for here, then we have settled for something short of Jesus. Are you all with me? A leaning in and a waiting for something and a longing for something. And then he shifts gears a little bit in verse 6. I mean, think about the, the kids that have been beat up by the school and he pulls them in and he's just like, remember who you are. This is who you are. And then he, he changes gears and he's going to get a little bit more into now. When you go back into the world, this is how you respond. And it, it's a, a bit counterintuitive, I think. In verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. And then he's going to talk about suffering. In this you rejoice. You, you, you have like this joy that just bubbles out and wants, it's like so much bubbling inside of you that it has to find an expression. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So much of my study each week, obviously a lot of time looking at the text, what is God saying, but I'm, I'm often trying to imagine 
that I am the recipient, I'm the hearer. And I got up really early this morning, uh, as, uh, as I often do on Sundays, got into my study and tried to imagine the people that were reading this letter, this scroll. For, I mean, like they, they knew enough about the gospel to be saved. They knew that Jesus was God, that, that he died for our sin, that faith in him, his grace, were, were saved. But I wonder if they were hearing some of these things about them for the first time. Maybe there was 50 people, maybe there was 300 people. I have no idea how big those churches were. Uh, but, but what if they were reading this for the first time and they were nervous? They were like, I think we're doing it wrong because we're being faithful. We're, we're trying to live like Jesus. And we just, like, there's a high cost. We keep suffering. We keep being persecuted. And then Peter writes these things like, do you have any idea who you are? Do you have any idea that you are receivers of mercy, that you've been born again, that you have a living hope, that you're a resurrected people, that you have an inheritance, that you're being guarded? And what if for the first time when they're reading this, they just start standing up and clapping and cheering and rejoicing? It's like, oh my gosh, do you have any idea what we have? Like, how did they respond? Because stuff like this cannot just kind of get in the cerebral cortex if that's the place we process things. Like, it can't just be a mental thing that we kind of have, kind of understand something. Like, if these things are true, Peter's like, God, you, you, in that rejoice, what if they just start singing and praising and standing and thanking God that, man, what unbelievable news do we have? And we can rejoice. Why? A, a couple things. Uh, we're going to get into this just for a brief moment here. The, the idea of suffering, because you are going to need a good theology of suffering. Because you're going to everyone suffers one way or another, and 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 Peter is going to give us a good biblical Christ-centered theology of what suffering is and how should we respond. You're going to get a little bit of that this morning. First off, he says that you're, they're grieved by various trials. What that means is there was all different kinds of things that relational problem hit, and then a financial problem hits, and then uh, the, the sink breaks or whatever. Like, it's just like wave upon wave. They just felt like things just kept coming at them. And so Paul says, like, in the midst of that, rejoice. I, I think a, a lot of us maybe subconsciously we think that sometimes there's, there's good days and there's bad days or there's good seasons and bad seasons. Um, but I think if, if, we, if we give it some thought, we kind of tend to realize, no, every season has good and bad in it. Uh, it's like you're, you're running down this two-track road and the, the two ruts are always there. And here's why this is so important that he says, no, you're getting bombarded by suffering and in that rejoice. Because sometimes there's a temptation for to think, man, it's been a really bad day. It's been a really difficult season. I'm going to wait until this bad season passes and everything's rosy. And then I'll worship and then I'll rejoice. People's like, no. That, like if you put that off, then there's a good chance that day will never come. There's always both. In this, we rejoice, though you're grieved by various trials. Number two, we rejoice in them not just because... Uh, uh, they're, they're always taking place and we always need to rejoice. But he says this phrase, um, this is the first time I've spent some time thinking about this. Uh, it's the, the two words, if necessary. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, comma, if 
necessary, you will be grieved by various trials. Which means that, that God, we, we, we believe that God is sovereign, he is in control, and if suffering is allowed to pass through his hands to get to you, he let it pass through. He didn't stop it on purpose. Why? Because it's necessary. Because it has a purpose. And, and the analogy he uses is gold. He says, just like gold, if you have gold, it's always mixed uh, in the beginning with, uh, with, with all this just kind of junk, and you've got to somehow separate it. And how on earth would you get pure gold? Well, he says you put it in a fire. The refiner's fire gets it so hot um, that they separate, uh, and you drag the dross off the top, you throw it away, and then you have pure gold. And you cannot do that without fire. You cannot get that without heat. He's talking about faith here, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. You cannot become more like Christ and have a strong faith without suffering and difficulty. It is necessary. You're not going to find an athlete that won a Super Bowl without some type of pain because it's necessary. I, I, I spent some time this week meditating on those two words, if necessary. And I know this to be true of experience. Maybe you do too. You know somebody like, they're just the model of faith. They have an incredibly strong faith almost guaranteed you ask them about it, they're going to tell you about suffering and difficulties because you don't get strong faith without suffering. So you can rejoice even if you're like them. And, and I, would, I would go so far as to say what they were dealing with is probably a lot more intense than what most of us are going through, not to belittle our experience. But even with what they were going through, it's like, listen, you can rejoice in the midst of it because it's not wasted, God won't waste suffering on his kids. So if you're going through it, you can smile, you can rejoice, not because it's happening, but because it's producing something in us. And, and it's so interesting that he says that it may be found, which is like the end goal of all this, of the suffering that tests our faith, that the end goal is to be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ, that a lot of us, you're going to go through very difficult things, suffering persecution of all different various things, and, and some of it's going to make sense, some of it is not, but the day you see Jesus face to face at the second coming, the revelation of Jesus, it results in praise and glory and honor. Why? Because you see, oh, it was worth it. It was worth it. At the revelation, it's not just when you're done, it's when you finally see Jesus, that it become, it kind of clicks. Oh, it kind of fades away. It was worth it. Verse 8, we got to move. Uh, I, I know so many of you might think, uh, not just about this, but about a lot of the Bible think, well, it was, it's so much easier for the people that were listening to this in the Bible because, you know, they got to see Jesus and they got to uh, touch him and hug him and have meals with him. Uh, and, and so this is a very helpful verse. So Peter says to these Christians, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What does that mean? That they're no different from us. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't hear his voice. They believed the gospel by faith. And so obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, these last few verses, verses 10 through 12, I 
I, I think what Peter is trying to do is to help these listeners, and I hope the Holy Spirit helps us this morning, to say, do you know what we have? Like, do, do you know the gospel that we claim to be true? Because he's going to say, like the Old Testament prophets that wrote the book, they were longing for the information you have. He says, the New Testament preachers, they showed up and shared the gospel of Jesus. And then he's going to talk about the angels. I have so many questions left about this text. I'm going to have to preach it again another day, but let's go. Uh, I mean, I think this is basically God saying to us, like, do you know who you are? Don't take it for granted. Do you know what we have? Verse 10, concerning this salvation, all those things that are true about us in Christ. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. They're writing down these things God told them about the Christ, the Messiah that was coming. And they were like searching, like, who is it? What's his name? When's he going to be here? Where is he going to be? Like, uh, they, they had so many questions about the details. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. That's the New Testament prophets. Now, they knew his name, Jesus. They knew where he showed up from. He was in Bethlehem. They, they knew the details. He's, he, he keeps going. They preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Wow. And that, that does not mean that the angels were like, well, they wanted to understand the gospel, they just couldn't. That's not what it means. Uh, it doesn't mean that they were longing to understand something, but they couldn't. Uh, I think it means that they, were, uh, that they were intrigued as outsiders to the drama and never being able to feel redemption. Never being able, uh, angels aren't born again. Angels don't uh, get adopted as sons and daughters. They understand this, but angels have been watching the gospel story play out and they're like, Peter's like, do you know what you have? Like the angel's like, golly, that would be incredible to experience the mercy of God to be reborn, to have your whole self changed so deeply that it's like you're a new creation. Like woe to us if it becomes so commonplace we can take notes on this stuff without it doing something to us. Peter's like, do you understand? The Old Testament prophets are like, oh, this is good stuff. Gosh, I wish I knew the details. The angels are looking in like, oh, I would long to feel what it would be like to be adopted by God. So may the Holy Spirit truly stir us up to be reminded and to know and to feel what we have in Christ. Because then... Only then. Like, do we get to be sent back out with identities solidly intact to be salt and light, to be helpful to the world, to be faithful exiles? I, I, I pray so much this morning that God would stir you up. Maybe you've heard these things and you've known them to be true for years, but just to be fresh in our hearts again. That do we know what we have
an inheritance, unblemished, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And we're leaning in. That day is coming. Let's pray. God, we love you. Holy Spirit, I, I pray and I ask and I invite that you would stir us up to help us to rejoice not because of difficulties, but rejoice because we know our Father uses them, that nothing filters through his hand that does not have purpose. God, I pray that you would remind us that this is not heaven. Of all the rich blessings that you have given us, may we be grateful and enjoy them, but would you remind us that some of your promises are still coming. I pray that you would help us, help this church and your people here to truly live as faithful Christians in the world. Remind us who we are so that we know what to do. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your mercy. May it never get old to us. Pray this through Christ who is alive and well, ever living to intercede for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.